Thanks, Julian. Thanks for reading the extra verses as well. Uh, Chapo used to say uh, to preachers, you know, work hard on the text, work hard on the application, and work hard on the, uh, on the uh, packaging. And of course, those three components all, you know, start to, to grow your word count. Uh, by Friday, I was double my desired word count for this morning. So I could have just done verses one to eight. Uh, but thanks for that. I've spent the last two days hacking and shopping and, and shaving back. Uh, if uh, I, I don't know you, my name's Pete Stacey. I'm the evening pastor here, and it is a privilege to sit under God's word together. Uh, human beings love love. We have a fascination with romantic relationships, whether it's in magazines or books or uh, movies, reality TV, uh, social media. We love to find out all the joys and heartaches uh, of our friends, celebrities, or just randoms. It's interesting. Um, today we have a bird's eye view of an ancient courtship. And as we look at it closely, there's so much that would deeply encourage us, but it also challenges us because I think it unmasks some of the unhelpful patterns in our own culture. So let's pray as we begin and look at this passage together. Gracious Father, please fill us with your Holy Spirit through whom you inspired the scriptures so that we may have your wisdom to understand your truth, your discernment to apply your truth and your strength to obey your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 2 finishes with the end of the wheat and barley harvest, and Ruth is living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, she's got plenty of food, but she doesn't have much future uh, because they're so vulnerable. Uh, these were dark times in Israel's history, but by God's grace, there's been some wonderful things going on in the lives of our main characters. Now I'm going to focus mostly on Ruth and Boaz this morning, but I want to begin by drawing attention to the wonderful transformation that's taking place in Naomi. At the end of chapter 1, her life was bitter, and she wanted to be permanently labelled that way by changing her name to Mara, which means bitter. Um, but God had other plans. Throughout chapter 2, we see a change of heart as God's provision of food brings help and just a glimmer of hope. Uh, and she's, uh, she's back in her homeland uh, where she grew up. She knows Boaz probably from her childhood. He's a close relative. And as she hears Ruth's glowing reports, she gets a very good idea of what kind of man he is. So as chapter 3 begins, instead of a grieving woman drowning here in her own misery, which would be understandable given all that's happened, she's now focused outward on the future welfare of her loyal daughter-in-law, Ruth. She's outward looking. Uh, friends, God calls us all to be outward looking, to think of others and put the needs of others above ourselves. But sometimes the circumstances of life are so painful and challenging that we retreat into ourselves just to cope with loss and grief and trauma. But friends, God is big enough to walk us through, to bring us through those times and bring us times of refreshing once more and renewed hope. And to a place where his love and his comfort and his care gives us enough strength to be others focused again. I wonder if you're caught somewhere in that journey 
at, the point, at this point in time. Sometimes God leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. But he doesn't want us to set up camp there. Keep moving. Keep following the great healer and shepherd of our souls. So Naomi sees the problem. The harvest is over. There'll be no more gleaning. And that means no more opportunity for Ruth to bump into Boaz. Uh, so she takes the initiative. Verse 1. My daughter... I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now, when we hear the word home, we think house. But the Hebrew word means a place of security and provision and peace where she's really at rest. Uh, and in that culture, that meant marriage. Hopefully to a really good man. Verse 2. Now, Boaz with whose women you've been working, uh, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. What on earth is she saying? Sounds like heavy-duty flirting to our ears, doesn't it? That's dangerous. I mean, in those days, women were, as still happens today, harmed by men. That's why Boaz had to, to tell his men not to touch her and uh, the warning not to work in someone else's field. It was evil then. It's evil now. It was condemned by God then. It's condemned by God today. We tend to gloss over this bit because we know how the story goes. But this could have been tragic. Except that it's Boaz. We've already seen his outstanding character, perseverance in hard times, passionate follower of God, protecting and providing for Ruth. And note the mention of the other women that work in his field. At a time of moral decay... Women were physically and emotionally safe around Boaz. Men, is that true of you? Jesus wants it to be true. He wants us to be pure in our actions and thoughts towards women. Calls to mind the Apostle Paul telling Timothy to treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity or job in the old testament who made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman as a church we want everyone to feel physically and emotionally safe uh, just this week john has added a tab on our website for reporting any concerns that you may have in this regard this is really important as God's people. Boaz had protected Ruth's purity from other men in his field. Over the several months of the harvest, uh, Ruth had the time to observe his behaviour towards herself and towards many others. Likewise, Boaz had the opportunity to observe Ruth and see how she worked and spoke and related to people and her care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So while the plan sounds high-risk, Ruth says to Naomi, verse 5, I will do whatever you say. And she does it. 
She trusts Naomi. She trusts Boaz. And ultimately, she trusts the God under whose wing she has taken refuge. And now we're about to see an ancient courtship play out. And I want us to reflect at this point on some of the differences uh, with how we approach courtship and marriage uh, in our culture today. In those days, marriage, marriages were generally arranged by the parents. I think we should bring that back in. What do you reckon? <laughs> Four daughters. Um, so it's culturally appropriate for Naomi to take initiative here. Quite normal. Uh, today, deciding if someone is a good match is up to the individual. Uh, the trouble is, when you're young and you're besotted in love, like, it's very hard to be objective. In marriage counselling, we call it idealistic distortion. And it, honestly, it can be off the Richter. Um, you know, I love everything about him. We'll never have an argument. She meets my every need. Oh, we're always so happy together. Those that have been married for more than about 10 seconds, kind of nodding, yeah, that's not real. <laughs> As people mature in marriage relationships, uh, over time, we realise the sort of qualities that really are important to make marriage last. I'm not saying parents should arrange their kids' marriages, but I am definitely saying this much. Young people, seek the wisdom of your parents and of other older Christians that you trust and admire. In those days, couples were rarely alone together before marriage. Dating, however, is all about being alone together, spending exclusive one-on-one -on -one time before committing for life in marriage. Now, one level kind of sounds sensible, but there are some issues to consider. In Australia, the average age of a first date is around 14 and a half years old. Uh, the average age for marriage, uh, this is for 2019, was 32 for men and 30 for women. That means the average Aussie has a window of over 15 years of dating. 15 years of beginning exclusive relationships and ending them. So by the time you think you're ready for, to consider marriage, you're really experienced at beginning and ending a close relationship. Usually because, you know, we face some sort of difficulty or we discover something that we don't like about the other person. Um, so as a culture, we're rehearsing breaking up. No wonder nearly 40% of marriages end in divorce. Almost 10 times more than in cultures where marriages are arranged by the parents. My strong encouragement to young people is don't start dating young unless you are planning to marry young. You might not end up marrying the first person you date. However, any boyfriend or girlfriend should be someone you could imagine marrying. And please don't swallow that lie that, that you need experience before you find the right one. When people use dating as a way to get experience, especially with the physical expression of love, but aren't planning to marry them, remember this. You're messing with someone else's future life partner. You're leaving emotional wounds on yourself and them. 
That's why some people end up feeling unwanted, unloved, and fearful of ever being emotionally close with someone again. Now, the goal of dating is to get to know someone before considering marriage, and it's a good goal. But when do you know someone well enough? And what should you look for in a life partner? And what things should wait until marriage? And what's the best way to relate, uh, to really see their character? So you do know them before that, that point. These are really, really important questions, especially for our young people. In God's providence, uh, the youth heard some answers from the Bible in an excellent talk just this week. Uh, we had Nathan and Emily uh, Hillcote, who were married just last year, uh, give the talk and they spoke about four things we have to look for in a life partner. And they shared the wonderful difference that God's, God makes. And if you want to hear more about it, just ask me later and I can uh, and, uh, give you some of their notes. It was fantastic. Um, dating couples typically spend a lot of time together uh, it's very easy in that context to be idealistic. You know, we present our best self for one person because there's no other distractions. But it's also easy to feel pressure to present a, a version of yourself that's not fully you. Uh, it's easy to be deceived by what you're seeing or to deceive. And of course, no one can give you any feedback about what's going on as you relate to each other, because you're alone. What we see in the book of Ruth is far more helpful. Ruth and Boaz spent a lot of time together over four months of harvest in a group context, seeing what kind of person the other was as men and women worked together in the harvest field. It's a great way to get a realistic picture of the character of someone as you see them relate to lots of different people in a group setting. Because sooner or later, that is how they're going to relate to you. What's more, others can see the way that you're relating to each other and reflect back the good as well as any concerns they might have. And particularly for a couple that are thinking of getting married, really good if they're close friends, do reflect back those things. Uh, and certainly it's wise to seek the opinions of family, friends and other people at church. Uh, in their youth talk, Nathan and Emily uh, shocked us with this line, love triangles are great. Oh no, where's this going? <laughs> uh, but then they explained it like this. If you aim for each other along that bottom line... You'll get closer, but you leave God out of the picture. But if you both put God first and aim towards God, what happens to your proximity with each other? You're just going to get closer and closer to, to the Lord God as well as each other. It creates a very, very strong bond indeed. And that's exactly what we've seen Ruth and Boaz doing. This next bit in verse 8 uh, cracks me up every time. It's fascinating, but it's funny. Um, men usually slept beside the grain pile uh, as security during the harvest. They'd done all this hard work, and, and thieves could easily steal a lot. Because, um, you know, they didn't have CCTV. Uh, the other kind of visitors that were common were prostitutes, because the men were away from home, and they were cashed up with, with grain. Uh, so Boaz is there. He's been so honourable in the public eye, 
But how will he go in private? He's alone. He's had food and a few drinks, maybe alcoholic, because the narrator does say he's in good spirits. And it's night, zero accountability. And in comes Ruth, and she's all dolled up and smells great. She followed Naomi's instructions to tea. They're finally alone. What's going to happen? Well, he doesn't even wake up. Maybe he, he had one too many. He doesn't even wake up when he, she first uncovers his feet and lies down. But in verse 8, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. He says, who are you? He asked. She goes, I'm your servant, Ruth. <laughs> I don't know what tone of voice she had. but I mean, this, is, this was a movie. This is one of those unexpected comic, comic relief moments just to break the intensity. It's a classic. Now we get to the climax of Naomi's plan. In verse 9, Ruth says, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That word garment is the same as the word wing back in chapter 2, verse 12. Ruth is saying, I want to take refuge under your wing in the context of marriage. Under your loving provision and protection. It's raw, honest poetry. It's beautiful. As her guardian redeemer, Boaz had the right and responsibility to intervene in the circumstances of Naomi and Ruth. He had the prerogative to take on all their needs and all their troubles and to take them to himself and to bear their troubles as if they were his very own in a permanent solution. Before we look at Boaz's reply, consider the Lord Jesus. He is our divine next of kin. He is the one who has the right and responsibility to intervene in our circumstances as people smeared with sin. He has the prerogative to take all our needs and troubles and sin upon himself and bear us as his own. All that spoils and ruins, all the hurt and brokenness, all the sinful messed upness of our lives he took upon himself. And he did so willingly by offering his very life for ours in his death on the cross as a permanent solution for our well-being. Thank you, Jesus. It's amazing. Look at Boaz's reply. He's genuinely surprised by her love. Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. And ladies, this is a description you want to be aiming for. It's wonderful. And men... The perseverance, passion, purity and principled life of Boaz is what we should be aiming for in all our relationships. Boaz knows that no one would have blinked an eye if she married anyone else. The Israelites were constantly intermarrying with the surrounding nations, but she had left her people 
left her land and left her gods and moved, moved physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually to God's land, God's people and God's loving rule. She embodied the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And she would only give herself to a man who would do likewise. And to anyone uh, uh, unmarried, I say two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And secondly, if and when you seek a life partner, make it your top priority that they share that same devotion for the Lord. Great difficulty awaits the person who neglects that point. In Boaz's reply, I don't know if it was on the screen or not, but did you notice the horrible twist? There's another closer relative. The whole love story is in jeopardy. She might be forced to marry some other relative who might not be nice at all. He might marry her just to get the family property. Who knows what's going to happen? Well, we all will next week. <laughs> Meanwhile, Boaz's godly character just keeps shining like a beacon of hope in a dark world. Men, will we do the same? Allow our godly integrity, our, our love for God, to shine like a beacon of hope in a dark world. And ladies, will you set your hearts on Christ above all else and be a woman of noble character? Boaz encourages her to stay for the night. There's absolutely nothing sexual here. Uh, he's protecting her. Travelling alone at night was dangerous for anyone, let alone a young, single woman. And telling her to leave before anyone recognises her is also a way of protecting her and protecting both of them in terms of their reputation. You know, it takes years to build a good reputation, only a moment to, to destroy it. And this was not going to be such a moment. Before she leaves, Boaz again lavishes her with abundant food for her and Naomi. He didn't need to, but he chose to. And in the same way that, that she got uh, all doled up and, and just looking and smelling it lovely uh, in a way that her exterior now matched the beautiful interior character that he had seen all along. In, in a way, she was saying to him, in marriage, I just want to bless you. And here, he, he keeps on lavishing on her uh, food and provision that he doesn't need to, in a way saying... If this all goes through, I'm just going to continue being blessing, blessing you. Like a deposit guaranteeing what he hopes will come if the other family redeemer doesn't follow through. But once again, we get to the end of the chapter and we're in suspense. What's going to happen? I hope I see you next week. It's not quite the dating rituals we're used to, uh, but it is a brilliant story uh, and a, a brilliant uh, picture of godly character. 
Uh, in a moment, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper as we remember what Christ has done for us and Christ redeeming us from our sin. And so what, uh, what I'll ask is for my helpers to come out and just to pass around uh, the bread and the juice. Uh, please take it if you are comfortable to do this. If you are a Christian, if you profess Jesus as Lord and Saviour, if you recognise him as the one who died for your sins on the cross, then take this as part of a symbolic remembrance. Uh, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then please don't feel any expectation or pressure from us. So I'll let people pass around if you can hold on to it, and then we will share in it together in a moment. As we come together to remember what Christ did for us on the cross, we remember his grace and mercy to us. But we also remember that we are sinners uh, who uh, go our own way, who fail to do the things that we should do, who neglect God uh, and fail in our relationship. And thankfully, we also know that when we confess our sin, when we acknowledge it, when we ask for forgiveness... Uh, that we will be forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. So let's uh, confess our sins together now with the words that are on the screen. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own ways and broken your laws. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you more and more. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our God fulfills his promises and is true to his word. We have confessed our sins. God has forgiven us because Christ has died for us.
And so let us remember the events of the Lord's Supper. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We who are many are one body in Christ, for we all share in the one bread. After supper, he took the cup and again, giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We drink the cup of the Lord to proclaim our fellowship in his death. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you that in the events of the cross you demonstrated your love for us. And while we were still far off, you brought us near. Thank you that through the sacrifice of your Son, we can be confident of our salvation, united together through your Son and by your Spirit, and heirs to eternal fellowship together with you. Amen. That brings us to the end of our time together this morning. Uh, If you're joining us in the room, uh, please feel free to stay and chat for a few minutes. Just be conscious of uh, personal space and uh, physical distancing. Uh, If you'd like to chat outside in the sun, that's probably not a bad idea either. Uh, For those who have joined us online, it's been great to have you with us. Have a great week and we will see you all again soon. Yeah.
whatever. If you want to play, then I don't have to play. Yeah, I'd rather not. Well, or we can all do it. Because then I don't have to sing and play. I don't mind trying to get better at it. Yeah, yeah, cool. Thanks, Pete. You'll get the balance right. Cause oh he's Phil too. Hi Phil. Um because Dom will get the No no no, I'm not. So at the introduction, Greg plays he's changed a bit. A F D he basically plays the first chorus. Uh, first verse. Which I stuffed up in there. 